joining me today on the first of our podcast, an idea we started last year and met with a number of the senior members of our firm. And today I thought the best place to start for our first podcast was with Seth Masters, the Chief Investment Officer here at Bernstein. Uh, some of you may know him from his writings, from appearances on Bloomberg, CNBC, Fox, um, on Bloomberg Radio. So he is a name and face that is probably familiar to many of you. Seth, thanks for joining me today. My pleasure. I'm going to ask the, I think, question that's on everyone's mind, and I apologize, it's very open-ended. Sitting here on Tuesday, February 28th, where are we now? Well, where we are is markets are feeling pretty optimistic about things. Uh, the stock market has started the year incredibly strongly, up about 6% in the U.S., and um, you know, similar amounts, in fact, in, in some, somewhat stronger in emerging markets and similar in, in developed foreign markets. And I think that that reflects the fact that broadly the world economy has actually begun to show signs of strength in many parts of the world. And um, sentiment is reasonably strong both amongst consumers and amongst companies. In that environment, you would often see people getting nervous in the bond world, but at least in the United States, bonds recently have actually been strong too. Yields are actually down recently. And, uh, I think what that is indicating is maybe this idea that we're in some sort of Goldilocks moment, at least for now. So, so that's what I was going to ask. When, when you told me that yields have come down and the stock market's gone up, that's different than fourth quarter of last year when the optimism hit post-Trump. So this is a, probably unique in that both markets, both the fixed income and, debt mar and equity markets, both look positive today. For the moment. For I the think moment. Well, the other thing that we see as very likely over the course of 2017 and beyond is that we're in a more uncertain world than we've been in for a long time. And that's because after the crisis, central banks were trying to really squash risk mm -hmm. and introduced quantitative easing and other exceptional programs right. in their efforts really to damp down what was incipient panic. And, uh, and look, they saved the financial system. They did help smooth and then ultimately relaunch economic growth. Um, the problem is now we pay the piper for that because they have to step back from all those programs, which is going to create a fair amount of uncertainty. And there's also on top of that a lot of geopolitical questions and elections coming up over the next few months that will probably crystallize some of this uncertainty. And that could be both good or bad. So I think that the way we see things is we're now in a world that's been fairly complacent certainly thus far this year, mm -hmm. but we'll probably see some big swings in the market and a big challenge in 2017 will be managing that kind of environment nimbly. So, so you talk about central banks providing stimulus and protection post-crisis. Um, I'm going to try and connect that to the current political environment. As central banks step back, how do we think, at least in the U.S., the Trump administration steps up in terms of providing some of that protection for markets? stimulus? Well, I don't think that the administration is explicitly thinking of it that way. I okay. think what they're thinking about is how can they deliver on their campaign promises. Okay. And their campaign promises include cutting taxes to both individuals and companies. Mm -hmm. And that actually would be good for the economy generally. Uh, depends on exactly how you do it, but it should be net of positive. Mm -hmm. They've also talked a lot about things like um, deregulation, which again could be good if it leads to better business sentiment. 
and therefore more investment. Mm -hmm. um, they've also talked about direct investment in things like um, the military, which tends to be investment heavy. That news and also, just this weekend. And that, yeah. Yep, and also infrastructure, which uh, is actually sorely needed, but looks like it's now being perhaps pushed out. Um, all of those things would be positives. Now, they've also made a bunch of campaign promises which are not beneficial to the economy, including some of the protectionist trade language, which is distinctly unhelpful to most businesses and to most consumers, actually, um, and also some of the anti-immigrant moves that actually have the potential to be quite disruptive to many businesses. So, so why are protectionist policies, you said, um, probably a net negative to most businesses and consumers? Can you just expand on why that might be? Right. Well, for a number of reasons. First of all, the U.S. is a net importer. And that's, of course, the reason for all this protectionism. Right. But if you start trying to um, slap penalties on the people you're importing from as a way of discouraging that, what you will find is they will, first of all, slap penalties on you and also the penalties you're slapping on them will make their goods more expensive here in the U.S., both for the businesses that buy them as parts that they're going to use and for the consumers for the who, consumer who buys buy them. Right. And that is especially problematic in today's world because the world has really benefited dramatically in the last 40 years from increasing global economic integration. The reason that we've had good growth over that 40-year period is in large part because it really leads to more wealth for everyone. By having a global supply chain, you're getting the low-cost supplier in each part of the world right. working on a common problem, which ends up producing goods more efficiently for everybody. And at this stage, that process is so far along that there are many products that you really can't make in the United States anymore. You can't make many types of trucks and cars just in the US. You can't make a smartphone and so on and so forth. And you could look at that and get worried about it. But the fact is, everybody has a common interest in working with everybody else, which is not only from an economic standpoint a good thing, but also from a geopolitical one. You know, having common interests does tend to reduce the risk of conflict. Right. And if you start unwinding that, you're potentially triggering a lot of what might ultimately be self-destructive behavior. So our hope would be that there may be a lot of noise around this, but relatively little action, because if, in fact, we do see a lot of protectionism, it will not be good for the economy. But net-net, there's a bunch of optimism in the market today, right, post-election. Um, do, do you think some or all of the rally post-election is, is related directly to the election? Um, actually, I think most of it is not. Because Interesting. A lot of the trends that have, I think, motivated the market to rally were becoming apparent late in the third quarter, but before the election unfolded. Um, we started to see the leading economic indicators and the confidence measures tick up in September and October. And what also happened is once the election was done, I think there were two reasons why that helped to lead to the rally to move another step up. First, because it eliminated a source of uncertainty. We knew what the result of right, the election right, was. Clearly. And second, because there was this view, and I think there still is a view, that an, a more business-oriented administration that also is promising tax cuts and deregulation 
could actually be a good thing for businesses in the economy. But I think there was always a question mark around that because we know that making promises is something politicians do fairly easily. Right. Uh, delivering on them is hard. And that's true for any politician, even when the incumbent in the White House also has the, the same party in the House and Senate. Um, remember, many of Obama's campaign promises in his first term didn't happen, despite that he had the same he lineup the same for the first two years. And, uh, and, and what we're seeing now is, I think, more statements coming out of the White House that recognize that these problems are complicated and difficult. Right. And it's not so obvious how you get all of the things that you might ideally want. And so a lot of the questions that I think will be well important to answer in, in coming months will be what are the priorities that, that the administration chooses to really put first on the list, and then how many of those will they actually be able to get? So, so you referenced in a question a, a second ago, uh, 40 years ago, of, of ref referencing the last 40 years of basically global trade, the world coming together. That, that coincides roughly with Reagan. There's been a number of comparisons to Trump today and Reagan then when they came into office. What's similar about this environment or different today versus when Reagan came to office in 1881? I think what's similar is that both Reagan and Trump explicitly campaigned as change agents. Okay. And they were, their, their explicit mission was to disrupt a, an unsatisfactory status quo. That's why I think both of them were elected. But in almost every other respect, I think they're very different because First of all, the, the objective circumstances back when Reagan was, came into office were we had double-digit inflation, the stock market was very cheap because companies were actually really not doing well, and in that environment, what you needed was policies that would actually be very stimulative so that you could have a chance of growing out of the pit that right. you dug for yourself during the Carter years. Um, and also, Reagan's basic message was incredibly global and positive. It was all about morning in America and a, a, a view that we were a city on a hill and had this incredible opportunity to be the leader of the free world. I think what we're seeing from this administration is quite a bit different in an environment that's different, too. Companies today are actually doing very well. American Companies as a whole have never been much more profitable than they are now, and, um, and and on top of that, their valuations reflect this success. They're not cheap. So that's what I was going to ask. Are, 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 is the market companies cheap, expensive, fair today? Well, put it this way. When Megan came into office, the market was trading at about an 8 PE, 8 times earnings. Yep. In other words, you were paying $8 for every dollar's worth of earnings. Today, it's more than double that. Okay. So that's we would argue it's not that expensive. Because interest rates are very low, which is the second big difference, right? Back when Reagan came into yeah. office, interest rates were very high. Now, interest rates are very low. Um, so making that adjustment, it's not that stocks today are way overpriced, but they're certainly not cheap. And if they're not, if they're not expensive, it's because you have low interest rates, which you didn't have back then. And I think the other big thing is you're seeing from the Trump administration a narrative which is very different from what Reagan was talking about. It's much more nationalistic and actually much less optimistic. And I think that those are, you know, those are maybe signs of the times, but 
the challenge for us, I think, as we move through this period is to make sure that um, you don't necessarily just assume that something that happened under Reagan is necessarily going to happen again under Trump, because there are a few similarities, but many more differences. So, so you referenced low interest rate environment today. What's your and our forecast on interest rates from here? And question that I know you've been getting a bunch, how does that relate to inflation and where that goes from here? Well, interest rates today, um, the 10-year Treasury right now is yielding about 2.3%, 2.4%, are still very, very low by any long-term historical... Um, Almost anywhere on the chart, right? Exactly. And and look, they're, they're, we don't know exactly when to call a turn in markets. We've never believed that that was something that was easy to do. But here's what you can say. Over the last 35 years since Reagan, mm-hmm. we've seen interest rates go from something in the mid-teens down to something in the low ones and twos for 10-year bonds. And that's been an incredible bull market for decades that I think you should assume is now basically over. Can't get much lower then. It really can't. Or put it this way, if interest rates did get lower again, it would be because something really terrible happened. It has to be really bad. And the whole world fell into a Great Depression, which we think is extremely unlikely. If anything, some of the more deflationary and more stimulative moves that the administration would like to make would be a reason to believe that we really are at that turning point where we're going to see an extended period, maybe several decades worth, of rising interest rates, which is what we had, by the way, after the Second World War. From the 1950s until 1980, interest rates bounced around up and down a lot, but they had a, a, an upward tendency mm-hmm. going from actually rates very close to today's rates in the late 40s and early 50s up to those double-digit levels that greeted Reagan. So I think what we're likely to have is, again, that sort of experience in the next many years. And look, we survived the period after World War II. And in fact, over the period from the early 50s through 1980, Treasuries actually returned about 4.5% annual. So it's not that it's the end of the world when rates go up. It's just, it's a bit of a headwind because... For bonds or for everything? Well, for everything. Because given our very low current yields for bonds, the rate of return you're going to get on your bond portfolio is going to have two headwinds fighting fighting you. First, the yield you get is low. And secondly, as interest rates gradually tick up, the principal value of your portfolio will periodically take a little hit here and there. Now, mm-hmm. it's, because bonds tend to be relatively stable, you're still going to probably make money on bonds over time, but just not that much. Right. And that ends up, because bonds are the safe asset in the world, that ends up being a bit of a headwind for all assets. Since everything else is being priced relative to the safe asset, if your safe asset has a lower return, and then you're adding a premium for taking on risk in other assets like stocks that are riskier, since your starting point is lower, the return on stocks will also not be as high as it's probably been for the last 20 or 30 years. So how does this connect to inflation? And I would say if I was generalizing the people who are on on this podcast, um, a lot of them are either in retirement or, or that's the first thing they're thinking about in terms of their so interest rates and inflation are probably their biggest um, concerns. And they should be. Right. So so how should they think about inflation from here and, and what that means to how they should be thinking about their spending and their asset allocation? So look, on inflation, what we've 
been able to determine over time is that no one is particularly good at predicting what happens and when inflation becomes an issue. Well, that's a scary start to the it's answer. It's a very question. scary start to the answer. <laughs> so it's a fundamental risk. It's sort of like a natural disaster. You know that if occasionally, and very rarely, you will have an inflationary period. And incidentally, over the last 100 years, there have been exactly three in the U.S. In World War One, and then a period that basically was, you know, around the, uh, the, the, you know, the Korean War, and then a period that was in the, the 70s and 80s. That's it. And the fact that inflation is relatively rare has a lot to do with the fact that it, they, people should be worried about it, especially if they're retired, because inflation is a very pernicious tax. It really erodes your purchasing power progressively over time, and its impact on your ability to maintain your lifestyle is as if not more serious than an event like a Great Depression. So you're absolutely right that that's something people should worry about. Now, our view about this is we're not going to be any better than anyone else at predicting inflation. And right now, inflation is still very, very modest, kicking around at a little bit under 2%, which is a little bit below the Fed's stated target. And if it stays there, that's probably not a bad level, because having a little bit of inflation in an economy is a bit like a lubricant. It just helps make the machinery of a modern um, economy and run it's a, a bit lot more better than the alternative of deflation. And it's certainly right. And the problem is, because it's hard to measure exactly, you don't want to be tipping into deflation without realizing that it's happening. That's why central banks have typically targeted inflation that's a small positive number. Right. What happens is every once in a while, they get it wrong. And I think everybody's concern is there's so many unknowns in the world going forward. There's lots of things that could surprise. And if there is an inflation surprise, it won't be good for bonds, obviously, because any fixed income instrument that has a fixed yield is going to be worth significantly less if there's an inflation surprise, which essentially is devaluing that future stream of fixed payments. Right. It's also not good for stocks at least initially, because even though stocks are, you own, when you own a stock, you own a share of the earnings of a company, and those earnings will over time inflate mm -hmm. with prices. The problem is the PE ratio, the price people are willing to pay today for that future stream of earnings, will get crushed when there's an inflation surprise, because people are going to be discounting those future earnings back to the present by a much higher hurdle, yep. and that will make today's value for, for the future earnings lower. And we've seen that happen in every one of those big inflation episodes in the past. It's likely to happen again if there is another inflation surprise. So for people who are concerned about this and who are spending from their portfolios, they really do rely on their portfolio to generate um, their future, you know, the, the cash for their future needs. It makes sense to have some inflation protection, and we have a number of ways of delivering that. We have a a multi-asset real return portfolio that has a number of inflation-sensitive assets in it, it will tend to go up by significantly more than the increase in inflation whenever there's an inflation surprise. And that's invested in, in assets like um, commodity futures, which have consistent pattern of doing better than hard assets, hard assets when inflation surprises. Um, also, natural resource producers and companies that have some kind of pricing power in their marketplace. And those two categories of investments also tend to do well when inflation surprises. And finally, also real estate that's inflation sensitive. 
a lot of people think of real estate as an inflation hedge. It's not necessarily true. Because, for example, if you own an office building with 15-year leases, if inflation goes up, you actually suffer because your operating costs of maintaining the building are going to rise more than your the, rents. Right, the rent. But a hotel that can reprice its rooms next week Interesting. is much more inflation sensitive. So you can't really just call real estate an uh, inflation hedge. It really depends on really depends. what your income stream associated with that is. That's right. And another point I'd make, so I think we, we, we would be big believers in having some exposure to this sort of inflation-sensitive asset in a portfolio if people have a legitimate reason to be worried about about inflation risk. How worried are you about inflation? You, you use the term inflation surprise. Do yes. You, you, and you can't quantify this exactly, but do you think that's unlikely, likely? Do you think inflation slowly grinds higher? What's your best forecast for that? You know, I, I think now the risk of some kind of surprise is probably higher than it's been for a while because the economy is beginning to get closer to some of its productive capacity constraints. This is the negative of a good base story, right? Yeah, I mean, we've been having a, a very extended recovery. We're in year seven. Um, official unemployment is down below 5%. And a lot of industries have you know, capacity utilization that's in relatively strong territory. That's all good. Right. That's one reason why companies are making a lot of money. But the flip side of that is that means you're running closer to the point where things might get overheated. And we won't know that that's happened until too late. And that's the reason why when inflation does occur, it's a surprise. And, and we, so we want to be ahead of that from a planning perspective. Right. And I think the question is, what does it actually cost you to have that inflation protection in place? Because like most protection, it does cost Almost like insurance, right? Exactly. And the cost is relatively modest, we think, at this point in time. And that's... And if you're a retiree and it's your biggest risk, you might as well buy you might cheap well insurance, some. right? Yes. And so I think that you know our view would be it's a good time to have a conversation about adding some inflation protection to a portfolio if you're spending 4 plus percent every year from the portfolio and this is a concern. Um, two last questions on, on different topics. We've focused a lot on the U.S. Um, what's your feelings on what's going on with Europe, both from an economic growth perspective, the whole Euro experiment, and we're going to have a bunch of elections over the next few weeks and months, and what's just the broad Bernstein take on, on how to think about Europe, uh, importantly also as an investment, right? It, it's not just about how's their economy going to do, but should, should clients have money overseas? So I think there's a couple reasons why it's a really good idea to have money overseas in, in general, um, and today in particular, which is that the, um, the world is a big place, and not all the good opportunities are ever going to be in any one country. And look, the U.S. has had a wonderful run. It's beaten the rest of the world in six out of the last eight years, and its cumulative margin of victory is pretty huge. But you know, the spread over that period is about 40% in favor of the U.S. Um, and it's always great when the home team wins. But you have to be realistic and recognize that streaks like that end. And they tend to actually be somewhat cyclical. So in the previous eight years, it was non-U.S. markets that won six out of eight. So as an investor, you want to have some exposure to the rest of the world for both the opportunities that are out there and also to prevent the risk that something bad happens in the U.S., but other parts of the world are less exposed to it. Now, we don't think you want to just basically have an indexed weight to the rest of the world. 
that we think would be imprudent because most people in the U.S. are going to stay here and spend their money here. Right. At the end of the day, they're spending U.S. dollars. Right. So if you were if you were going to be purely indexed, you would actually have slightly more than half of your wealth outside the U.S. because that's what the indices look like. Because more than half of the, of the... Of the capitalization of world markets is outside the U.S. Which people forget when you live here. That's right. That and more of the world is outside of here than here. Yes. Our recommendation is that for most investors in the U.S., it makes sense to have about 70% of your equities here in the U.S. And if you're a taxable investor, because of the tax preference for muni bonds, you probably should have all of your muni bond, all of your bonds in muni bonds here in the U.S. because everything else is just so tax inefficient by con contrast. Which means you will have a U.S. tilt, but you would want to have, we think, about 30% on average of your equities outside the U.S. And that, in fact, we think is something you should be definitely doing today because there are lots of companies in Europe and Japan and other parts of the, of the world that are really attractive. And part of that is because people are so worried about all the problems you highlighted. Right. So stocks outside of the U.S. are quite a bit less expensive than stocks in the U.S., now, granted, they're not doing as well, and they're exposed to some risks that U.S. stocks are not. But cheap is good in our world, But right? cheap is good, and having different risks is a good thing, too, because it helps you diversify how much exposure you have to any one of them. In fact, right now, in our dynamic asset allocation portfolios, we're very slightly tilting toward non-U.S. for exactly that reason. But the allocation is still pretty close to 70% U.S., 30% non-U.S. Um, Last question. So clients come in and, and meet with myself or, or one of my colleagues, and you know it's a one-on-one -on -one meeting, and they, they don't have a great feel for what's going on when other clients come in. And, and you see clients all around the country do hundreds of these types of meetings. In a very sort of emotional, soft way, what do you find the tenor of investors out there today? You know, it's interesting. I think uh, to use sort of a, a technical term, it's, it's a bit bimodal, and sometimes people have two simultaneous thoughts in their heads in the same meeting. One of the things you hear a lot about is fear mm -hmm. and real concern that a bad thing could happen either in Europe or some other part of the world or right here at home that could be devastating for both financial markets but also you know, for other reasons. And, uh, and that basically we just live in a scarier time than we've had to deal with for a long while. Which I'm very empathetic about. I, I, yeah. I, I read the newspapers. I see why people have those fears. But at the same time, I think people are still really looking for the great returns, the 10% plus returns that they have experienced over you know, the last few years. And I think what we'd say is probably both of those sentiments are a little bit more extreme than they need to be. The rates of return that are on offer in most markets these days are just not going to get you the same sort of returns that you got over the last 20 years. And having some realism about that is a good thing because it allows you to make plans that are more, much more likely to actually unfold and therefore not only prevent disappointment but actually give you outcomes that are consistent with what your needs will be. And maybe even conservative so that you do better than the plan as opposed to feeling disappointed. At the same time, I think a lot of the sort of terror that people are feeling is overstated. And look, I think as we started out discussing, the economy both in the U.S. and in most parts of the world is actually doing pretty well. 
there are structural problems, but there are always structural problems. There are geopolitical threats, but there are always geopolitical there's threats. Rare, there's rarely a day that the Wall Street Journal's cover is perfect time to invest, right? That's well, and not how it works. <laughs> what I would tell you is the day you read that cover is the day you should be very, very worried. Because if there's one classic observation, it's that the, the most dangerous times are the times when people become complacent and over-optimistic. When people are convinced that everything is hunky-dory and it's always going to be, that's when markets get completely out of whack and you should be very concerned. And so it's interesting because I'd almost wrap with this thought that in when my phone rings today, there's almost, you, you said bimodal, this equilibrium. I, I don't know what I'm going to get on the other side of the phone. Some people are very fearful and some are really looking for a return. And some are both. And, and some are both. And that's fair. In, in 2008, we, we knew when we picked up the phone, they were fearful clients and for good reason. And in the late 90s, we knew those clients were optimistic and wanted to make as much money as possible. Is it fair to argue, because you've got two sides today, I think makes it very interesting, you could argue that the market's more in equilibrium in that regard, right? You don't have enormous amounts of irrational exuberance, and you don't have enormous amounts of fear. You have them sort of concentrated on two sides of the aisle. Well, I think that's, I think that's a great place to end. Yes, I think you've stated it nicely. I think what we're probably going to see over the next few years, though, is a lot of yo-yoing. And so, you know, for a while, one of the points we were trying to make is that we thought that it was a great opportunity to buy equities because the Dow was, you know, trading. You got at some press 12, for this. And, right, and <laughs> we thought it would get to twenty thousand, and it, now it has. Right. I think the outlook going forward is that we'll have many more opportunities to celebrate Dow twenty thousand. On both ways, up and both, down. Exactly. And, and, and this brings to the 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 you know rule one of investing, and it sometimes sounds silly to go back to this, but then in that world you really do have to have a plan and stick with it because otherwise you're going to get whipsawed on both sides. Precisely. And further, I think there's a couple of key things to, to end on. One is exactly that, that. You really need to have a plan and, 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 and take advantage of those swings up and down as opposed to being whipsawed by them. And the second thing is, in that sort of environment, if the market overall is really just swinging up and down but without a strong upward trend, it's really important to have essentially some ability to do better than the market either by buying those securities that are not like the rest of the market and do have mm -hmm. an upward bias, or by investing in other types of assets, we talked about mm -hmm. inflation-sensitive ones, that are not so driven by the market and have the potential to do well even if the market doesn't. Seth, I want to thank you for joining us. And for those who listened, if you have any follow-up questions, feel free to reach out to me directly via email or via phone. And I look forward to speaking with all of you individually soon. Take care.